Recovery Sort Of is a podcast where we discuss recovery and addiction topics from the perspective of people living in long-term recovery. This podcast does not intend to represent the views of any particular group, organization, or fellowship. The views expressed here are solely the opinion of its contributors. Be advised there may be strong language or topics of an adult nature. Welcome back. It's Recovery Sort Of. I am Jason, and I am not a drummer in a rock band. And I'm Billy. I'm a person in long-term recovery. And we're here today with Sony, uh, who is of, if nothing else, Hootie and the Blowfish fame for being the drummer of the band who we all know and love so well. Uh, I, Sony, before we even get started, I got to tell you, like, I'm not a, an excellent guitar player. I'm a guy that loves to strum some chords and sit around my house and sing some songs. And one of the things that is still a staple in my repertoire is Let Her Cry. I don't know why that song touched me. I love the chord. It's pretty simple to strum. And uh, I, I just had to throw that out there. It's great to be meeting with you today. I'm going to turn it over to you. You can introduce yourself and, and tell us why you're here. And we'll go from there. Thanks for having me, y'all. Uh, Jim Sonnefeld is my given name, a wonderful Irish-German backdrop. Uh, and uh, But everybody's called me Sony for a long time. And to answer your question, I already know why you play Letter Cry. You said it. It's easy to strum to. It's easy to sing to. A few chords. It's a, just an easy one to love on. And uh, I still enjoy playing that thing, too. Awesome. Um, yeah, I've... Uh, enjoyed my guys hooting the blowfish mark and darius and dean we have been uh, managed to keep a great friendship uh for over three decades um but i'll tell you a little bit about how i found how i found them which is uh, a journey that starts uh, being part of a big family myself i had four siblings and uh two loving parents who we bopped around in my early years but finally landed uh, in a suburb of Chicago, and we were out there in the cornfields in a town called Naperville, which was very small at the time, and um, we liked it out there. It was a pretty simple life, and it was a growing place, and I had a few things fighting for uh, uh, importance in my life, even as a young kid. It was sports. Uh, I could, you know, just mad chasing anything and following teams and anything with a bat or a ball or anything I could kick or shoot, I was totally obsessed with. And I did that pretty hard. It kept me out of trouble in, in many ways. And music was another thing that was fighting in there. I had a very uh, cool mom. She had cool taste for a mom, if you will. And, you know, in the late 60s and early 70s, she was into some, you know, British rock, classic rock. She was into some cool R&B. And uh, my dad listened to a little older stuff, but he even had some cool interest in, uh, you know, outlaw country at the time. I don't know if it was outlaw country then, but, um, you know, Willie Nelson and Waylon. And uh, so we had music going on. And I was also sort of, I, I call myself a born drummer. I, I just was born and I tipped and tapped with my fingertips and my feet and my teeth. And I hummed it and I annoyed most people around me in a growing manner through my uh, uh, childhood, because I couldn't stop it. There was something going on in my head and my heart that just wouldn't stop. It was a rhythm and it was sort of uh, unorganized at the time. And by the time I turned 13, my parents realized maybe 
cheaper than therapy for this kid would be drum lessons. And uh, they got me drum lessons uh, and that helped organize some of these noises and rhythms that just wouldn't stop. It did organize them, but they still go on. I'm still tipping, tapping, everything. It won't stop, whatever on that. I don't think there's any therapy for that. Uh, and when I was 14, I had kind of a turn. I'd been in this Christian school with a small group of uh, kids every year. And I was about to go for high school to this big public school. And I was really excited uh, to see more people, meet people, and just experience something bigger. It was like went from 25 kids to a freshman class of about 500. And uh, I had some friends from the public school from my neighborhood. And that summer, right before freshman year, I, for the first time ever, found myself in front of kids who were partying. Uh, you know, 14-year-old kids who were smoking cigarettes, which I'd already goofed off with, but, you know, smoking weed, uh, drinking alcohol, carrying on with no parental supervision. And though I knew from, you know, my parents and from the priests who had taught me and the police who had often visited our front door because I had older brothers, right? You got to know them by the first name basis. Hello, Mary Lou and Otto Sonnefeld. Hello, <laughs> officer. You know, all of them had told me and I had been drilled into me that, you know, alcohol or drugs are, are either illegal, unlawful or dangerous. But when I got in front of my peers and out of the sight of the authority figures, I went right for it. I mean, it was a very natural sort of thrill seeking instinct in me to uh, somewhat get away with something and also experience that thing that I knew was not supposed to be mine, a chemical change. And um, I liked it. I felt, you know, the impacts immediately like you would when at any age, when you put chemicals in you, it changes your mind a little bit. And uh, I loved the feeling from what I remember, maybe like a lot of us experimenting the first time, feel a little bit taller, a little bit stronger, a little bit funnier, a little bit better looking. And uh, I didn't have any hangups as a kid fitting in. I was a little shy, but sports always allowed me to uh, have friends. And so that feeling was wonderful for several hours, in fact. Uh, but you would have found me at the end of that night on my knees on the side yard, uh, vomiting in the bushes and, and immediately trying to hide that from my parents so they wouldn't know. And uh, instead of perhaps taking a minute and saying, gosh, that's not for me, or I shouldn't do that, or that seems dangerous. More of an athletic mindset was, oh, the score's one nothing. Alcohol is winning at the end of round one, but I'm going to damn sure give it a try next weekend. And so uh, I knew where to go, and I knew what friends I could uh, call up to get into stuff like that. And so I became a weekend warrior for the most part, managed to you know graduate high school in four years, and play soccer mainly uh, for all four of those years and be successful. Um, the grades were good enough. I had friends, I had difficulties, but they were never big enough uh, to warrant, you know, a self, a you know, a critical look at myself because I hung around kids that were getting in more trouble, some that were getting in less. And as long as I somewhat was in the middle, that was enough for me. And I went off with a big dream for college soccer to a division one school in Columbia, South Carolina, the University of South Carolina, fighting Gamecocks. That's our theme song, right? Yeah. 
And it was great. I, I was, you know, 800 miles away and the only authority figures really were my college professors and my college coaches. And the drinking age had gone from 21 back in Illinois to 18 in South Carolina at the time. And so I kept, you know, riding the roller coaster, uh, shooting for, you know, dreams of soccer and, and uh, good relationships, but also shooting for uh, chemical dreams, wanting to reach some place, uh, you know, of, of high, uh, but it always came with a price. You know, when you're on that roller coaster, you can go 10 stories high, but you got to come down 10 stories eventually. And right. so those bottoming out periods were uh, not more frequent, but they hurt a little more. Took me six years to get out of the University of South Carolina, uh, and I only had a four-year degree. So do the math there. Um, I was taking my time, or I was unfocused. I'm sure drugs and alcohol didn't help that. But uh, I managed a degree, and and the soccer dream had sort of ended at that same time. And I'd already been playing my drums. I'd tried a few bands, and uh, I wanted to write songs. I uh, picked up an acoustic guitar along the way found a few simple songs that I could play along with and felt like, oh my gosh, this is like just a gateway to to writing and, and telling people my passion. I could sing a little bit. I started learning piano too. And uh, luck uh, or not luck, but uh, timing was on my side because there's three guys in a local band, uh, Mark and Dean and Darius and Brantley at the time, their drummer, who were moving out, getting out of college and really not wanting to settle into jobs either. They wanted to start writing music. They'd been a band for several years, mostly a cover band. And uh, they were wanting to give it a try in the original music uh, category. And as Brantley left the band, I auditioned and sat in there with the three of the other guys. And I was great at drumming all the songs they'd asked me to learn. And they asked, do you have any original material? And I brought in the one song that I was proud of, you know, at that time in probably August of 1989, it was called Hold My Hand. And uh, three chords, a fun, positive, hopeful lyric uh, about, you know, helping others and around us. And I was just hating seeing the oppression and the unfairness and the unjust world around me. And I was a naive 25-year-old kid, and I just wanted us all to get along. So Hold My Hand was a manifestation of those ideals and you know it, it covered the three chords that i knew and that was good so they loved it and they said yeah we're, we're trying to do something like that so there i went uh we all had day jobs we we worked our butts off doing what we could to pay our modest rents in our dumpy little apartments and and we tried to find someone to represent us so we could book some gigs and that took a little while but we just called places um to try and get gigs we didn't ask for much money we didn't have much of a following we played sorority greek parties to fund a van insurance gas money and recordings of our original music and we just set out you know big dreamers uh, didn't have a whole lot going for us besides a real talented singer who we probably took for granted. We just thought he was a singer, Darius Rucker. And and we were all still learning our craft anyway, you know, and uh, learning how to write songs, how to please audiences, how to interact. And meanwhile, spending a growing amount of days in clubs and traveling throughout the Southeast, which I found to be very likable. You know, 
I could deal with my consequences a little more easily when I was leaving the towns each night. So we moved from playing Fridays and Saturdays to Thursdays and Fridays and Saturdays to Wednesday through Saturday. Finally, our bosses were all like, uh, hello, you do work here still, right? And finally we said, no, we don't. And they let us go. And I liked that geographic change that I was continuing to get because I was having consequences uh, relationally and uh, sometimes with the law or in, in the form of fisticuffs. And so to leave after each one night stand that we did was very convenient for me. I felt like I was getting away from those problems and they were disappearing. That, of course, was not true. They were actually building up and I was not forced to emotionally face some of these difficulties. I just left them. And uh, so we worked five years paying our dues, 89, 90, 91, 92, 93, and 94. We finally get signed to Atlantic Records, the home of Ray Charles, Led Zeppelin, Aretha Franklin. It is one of the biggest and most influential record labels of all time. And we just have a dream to make a record <laughs> that someone else is paying for. They fly us to LA. We get their eyes wide open, like, oh my gosh, this is, we're in LA y'all. And, you know, we pass by Warner Brothers Studios and Sunset Boulevard and uh, the Hollywood Bowl. And we're just like, this is, this is where dreams are made. This is also where dreams can be crushed or they can end. We knew friends and bands that had been successful, got a record deal, made a great record, and it never got to radio. And the band broke up or decided, ah, we tried our hardest and we didn't know what would be our sort of destiny. So we just sort of did the best we can, we could, and made a record called Cracked Review. And in 1994, when it came out, it, it, it uh, plowed into the top you know, 40 of billboard charts at uh, number 127. <laughs> so we weren't uh, making an immediate impact. And a few months later, even after some hard work and promotion, we were probably lingering between 150 and 200 on the charts. It wasn't going our way. And the break we got, which uh, we call luck, and I define luck as where preparation meets opportunity. We'd worked hard, but we needed some other thing to happen, you know, the opportunity. And this guy with his own late night show heard Hold My Hand, which was on a few radio stations at that time in August of 94. And he uh, called his booker and said, get me these guys that sing this Hold My Hand song on my show. That guy was David Letterman. And wow. he had, you know, 6 million viewers every night. And so we moved from playing to hundreds of fans per night to playing our three and a half minute song in front of six million people one night. That changed our trajectory forever. People liked it. Radio started playing it. Next thing you know, the album moved from 165 to 140 to 120 to the top 100 to the top 40. And by May of 95, we hit number one for the first time. And we began a journey that uh, uh, people have written books about, including myself, and uh, people scratch their head and go, how did those guys make it to number one? Because we seemed like plain guys who were pretty unassuming and and uh, not your average sort of heroic entertainer vibe. We were, we didn't have expectations. We didn't dress the part. 
we were just happy to be there for the ride. And that began a journey that you guys probably came in on too. If you were sitting around listening to a radio station in 95, you may have had some feelings about hitting the blowfish too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's our generation. Yeah. I graduated high school in 92. So that's, you know, right in that area. And it was a lot of grunge music then too. So you guys had a little different vibe. It was a little more upbeat, a little more fun, you know, like a little more enjoyable music. Real good music. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We went against that grain. And that's probably uh looking back, uh maybe one of the reasons it worked. While there's trends that work and everybody was putting out a grunge album at that time, the the, the mood was growing that, oh, it'd be nice to hear something different. And that's an intangible mood. There's no stat for it, but it seems when Hold My Hand hits the radio, the people like it because it's against the grain and it looked a little different or sounded a little different. So well, uh, on, on of, we went. Right. Well, and it almost points to an interesting piece of like, you know, in the grunge scene with, with the the grittier, more painful so-called lyrics and, you know, drug use was kind of a thing and abuse. You, you knew about it in there. So it's interesting that, here we're sitting with the person who had the lighter music, and yet we're still talking about that same issue. You know what I mean? Right. We uh, And it didn't, you know, people will often say or claim, uh, you know, the world of entertainment or rock and roll, it's, you know, so dangerous and you can get in so much trouble with drugs or alcohol or negativity. But I, I found like it, I was already sort of in it. You know, I'd started practicing, in, as I said, in high school, and then through college, and of course, five years of clubs, there's few guardrails, there's few, uh, you know, figurative police out there telling you to act right. You know, it's almost as if at that point, the the more ridiculous you are, you can become that, you know, person that people are looking at and laughing and saying more, more, more. And though I wasn't just a fool, I was an entertainer, I sort of embraced that idea, and it's a good place to camouflage what could be a problem with your, your your chemical intake. And that's how it was for me. You know, suddenly the world is embracing you. You're you're put up on this pedestal where people look at you and say, there's a successful guy. Life seems to be good. He seems to be okay. I started a family. Um, I started having kids and uh, it would seem like everything was okay. But uh, really what that whole scene ended up doing was camouflaging uh, a disease or an illness or a dis-ease that was growing in me. And uh, it was the perfect place for it to be camouflage, but it also extended, you know, this sort of false life or dual life that I was living, looking like I'm successful in society's eyes on the outside, but on the inside, I'm getting real freaking tangled up. I've got uh, emotional debates in my heart and head that I don't know how to resolve because I've not really developed emotionally. I've been a guy who's partied to feel better, who's had geographic changes throughout his 20s that seem to tell me I'm getting away from my problems, but I'm not. And by the time we have about five years of fame and fortune, you know, the next new band is ready to kick us off the pedestal. Mm. Cooler hair, cooler songs, tighter jeans. And, you know, I'm unprepared for this on a personal emotional level but I see it happening. And I, by 2001, I, we know, and I know our best years are likely behind us. And that's a hard thing to grasp when you're still 
viable. You still want to make music. You still want to travel. You just started a family. You have a little money in the bank. I couldn't figure out why it felt so bad when I didn't know what to do with it. So I went to what always worked for me, booze, alcohol. You know, as a society, there's nothing more that signifies a success or an achievement than holding up a shot glass or a champagne glass to say, we've done something. So when things started going downhill, I just kept holding that thing up defiantly, like, we're still good here. Aren't we having fun? And as the empty seats grew, I couldn't, I couldn't deal. There were this sort of contradiction of uh, it's going down. The ship is going down and I'm the guy treading water, but making sure my, you know, Jägermeister glass didn't go below the waterline. And uh, it was uh, five, about five years of that turmoil. You wouldn't have wanted to be in my path at that time. Now, I guess part of what I'm hoping to explore today, Sony, is, is the differences, and this is going to sound terrible no matter how I say it, but the differences between what it took for you to find recovery as a person who maybe doesn't have the typical everyday experience, you know, how is that different from like your everyday person that had to, you know, and, and, and I, I hear you saying a lot of things that are the same, like, you had a version of denial, but I, I guess your version is a little different because you were traveling from city to city and there was a little more money to fund that denial. And you know what I mean? Things look pretty good from the outside, whereas maybe some people's stories don't. But I'm curious, along the portion you were just telling about, does it feel like having those bandmates around is different than maybe having just your family around? Like, does that give you an extra set of eyes that are telling you or an extra place of friction that kind of points towards something wrong for you? Or is that not helpful at all? Well, that's a great question. I, and, and, and to be sure, when you travel as extensively as we did for as long as we did, uh, your band becomes your family. And I mean that in a great positive way, but also in a way that, let's admit it, a lot of our families, including us, are extremely dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. So we we fall into the same traps that family do with codependency, with uh, str uh, struggles with authority figures and, and discipline and uh, communication. A band is no different. In fact, we were spending more time on the road. And while you're having success or you're working towards something, which we did for five years of hard work and fun, five years of glory. Uh, during that period, it's pretty easy to get along. We were, you know, success uh, covers up a lot of the blemishes uh, along the way. And suddenly when there's a struggle, um, those blemishes really start coming out. But we, as a band, all had our different lanes. We were, we had all started families. We were all struggling in our uh, relationships at the time. And it's hard to be there for your friends when we're all having that struggle. Uh, on top of that, I guess fame in, in the sense of a band pushed us apart a little ways too. Like we were just four dudes. 
in the uh, early 90s to 1995. Four dudes who loved doing what they were doing. Darius wasn't a natural leader for the band. He was just the lead singer. So we all fought to, to, to get attention and to help the thing, you know, work, run itself. And by the time fame comes, well, the media needs a leader. So it pulled Darius apart and they were constantly, the media was trying to pull us apart because they wanted Darius Hootie to be that guy. And he wasn't really naturally. And it, it tends to throw an imbalance on the band, right? Because mm. suddenly, suddenly our egos are, oh my gosh, I'm the drummer. I've already got an inferiority inferiority <laughs> complex. I'm in the background anyway. So I'm, uh, you know, the egomaniac with the inferiority complex. I, mm. I want attention, but I can't get it because I'm in the back. So I become jealous or, uh, tr you know, I just, my mind is not a, a, a healthy place. And all these struggles start happening with fame in some senses though like i said it's the same you know anybody that is seeking or uh using a chemical to try and feel better you know the same feeling i think is on the inside for anybody whether you work in an office whether you have a family or don't have a family uh, whether you're in a band whether you're noticed or unnoticed you still we all are humans we all have the same hearts we fight for love attention uh, to be noticed. Uh, sometimes we're shy. We're a host of contradictions, and we certainly were, and I certainly was. I, uh, as I mentioned, an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. I, I want all this stuff, but uh, I don't want it. I, I, we're so dysfunctional, and and I, I was that picture. So we couldn't really help each other when when my drinking and drugging started getting bad. Eyebrows were raised from my bandmates. Certainly. Eventually the interventions came, but I think the guy or the person who's suffering doesn't want to hear it from someone else who might still be having a good time. <laughs> mm -hmm. So as loving uh, and as sincere as some of those interventions were, uh, I was never going to trust it until I heard it from someone who could, I don't know, who I uh, felt had either been on my exact journey or uh, maybe it was a little bit ahead of me with some knowledge. And my my friends, my bandmates, they did that great thing. If you've ever been intervened, it's no fun. Your friends and family gather around. They tell you how much they love you, but you inherently know there's something more, which is them saying, we're worried about you and we're worried about where you're going. And those interventions, I appreciated them. And they told me that people were worried about me, but as somebody who identifies as a uh, alcoholic with the disease, my response to that was not, you got me. You're right. I can see the evidence. I am out of control. I'm having consequences. Where should I go for help? My response was, damn, I, I hate that I've disappointed these people. I, I'm not a people pleaser. I don't really care what they feel, but I need their approval and I'm not getting it now. So what do I do? I go off and try and hide it better. I make a commitment to myself to say, oh, I can't get caught. I need to go, you know, to different places to do the drugs that they're not approving of or to hang out with the people, people they don't understand. That's my sickness. And that's what I do for a few years is go do, you know, try and do a better job of hiding it. And um, that doesn't work. I end up hiding it, hiding secrets from my family, my bandmates and you know, eventually um, it gets too tiresome. Right. 
I'm, I, 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 it is a pain in the ass to be a full-on active addict and alcoholic and try and live a normal life. And yeah. I mean, uh, greater people have taken their own lives as an answer to that. And there is help for that too. But, you know, I, I'm thankful that that wasn't going to be an answer that I was uh, seeking. I, you know, I just was so frustrated with how I felt and how my life was. But since I was unwilling to ask for help, I didn't ask for help for a while. There's a great old king that had a wrote a proverb, and it says, uh, uh, "Do you see the man who is wise in his own eyes?" Which was me. I'm Hootie. I'm the blowfish. Don't tell me I'm, you know, out of control. I was a man who was wise in his own eyes. It says there's more hope for a fool than him. Because I wasn't willing to ask for help. I just couldn't. My ego and my pride wouldn't allow it. So I went as further down than I really needed to. You, you've mentioned a piece in there that we're all just kind of looking for attention and love and, and affection and, you know, compassion from people. I totally agree with that. I, I loved how you put it. In thinking with that, like I kind of look at uh, substance use or people who struggle with these challenges as people who you know, they, they describe it, uh, heroin users call it a warm hug and stuff like that. Like we're all kind of having this dis-ease or uneasy feeling or discomfort inside. And, and there's these things that soothe us, right? These pacifiers, whether that's the, the alcohol, the drugs, the shopping, gambling, whatever it may be, right? You kind of alluded to earlier too, that part of your fame sort of felt really good. And as that went away, maybe the attention went away is, is that a similar feeling and like how does do you drink less alcohol because you've got the fame soothing you or do you drink more because i yeah talk about that if it made sense to you i know it was kind uh, of a lot of scattered pieces. yeah no that's great for, i mean for me since we were having a success and and really living out a dream we, we that we never thought might be possible getting signed and getting selling millions of records uh because of that uh, didn't I wasn't uh, ever drinking to to relieve some fear mm -hmm. at that time? It's like oh my God, we're having a, the time of our lives, mm -hmm. and since we were young and energetic and in the machine of the business of music, you were told, you know, don't take a nap, don't like, don't rest on your laurels. This might not last forever anyway. So we went hard and we went around the world and everywhere we went. You know, imagine when you somebody normal goes to a concert on a Thursday night in some town, it's their big night. So there's 15, 20,000 people having the time of their lives. And when they wake up the next day, they probably go to work and they come home and eat and go to bed. Mm -hmm. But we were playing five nights a week. And so we go from town to town and we were everyone's biggest party. And I relished that as somebody who liked uh, the effects of, uh, alcohol, which was just basically alcohol at the time, you know, I love that. We were just living a dream. And so if there's a celebration every night, why not follow it? There's no, uh, you know, you just have to watch out for, you need to rest at some point. And there became my problem. And I don't know if this answers the question, but we would go home for periods, whether it be a few nights or a few weeks. And uh, I would go home and want to celebrate Oh my gosh, I'm this is my homecoming. Everyone around me is like high-fiving still and oh my gosh, let me buy you a drink. You guys have made it. You've been traveling the world. 
So I'd come home and continue the excess. You know, at the time I was, our kids were young enough that uh, I could push it a little bit and we could get help and uh, with uh, babysitters and, and it wasn't too bad, I thought. But I was, when people around me started realizing that Sony goes home on his off nights and doesn't rest, he keeps partying, they were a little concerned, you know, and it's the, and that's the part people don't see. Nobody thinks you have a problem because they just see you at the concert right. and they're all having fun. So they're not going to recognize someone who's uh, maybe looks a little tired or is uh, uh, sniffing incessantly <laughs> and running off to the bathroom. You know, he really must have some bad allergies. Nobody <laughs> sees that. But for me, it was started happening seven nights a week. Hmm. Now, was there any like major triggering event that led you to recovery or was it just a slow process of you know bad experience after bad experience that helped you have the realization that you had a problem uh i had something happen probably around 2001 and i had walked in and this is something i didn't use to help me this is another example of the disease i'd um, come in and there was some crew of ours who were all a big family. So there's 15 or 20 of us and we work together every day. We are sleeping next to each other. We're partying hard. We're it, You're very close. And they were talking amongst themselves about someone they were worried about. And they were talking about this person that was prone to some outburst, uh, temper outbursts, and they were moody. And then they were also hanging out with other people and they seemed to be partying later than anybody. And I could hear them talking about this and I, Honestly, in my mind, I'm like, well, I'm one of the four principal, you know, band members. I should probably find out who they're talking about so I can help them or discipline them. Ooh. And when I heard them keep talking and they said, yeah, who's going to go talk to Sony? Because I'm kind of afraid to talk to him. And I'm like, my eye, my chin, my heart dropped. Ooh. I was crushed that they were talking about me. And again, and maybe I alluded to this earlier, I went the other way. I said, I, I, I'm not going to face that. I'm, I'm going to hide that. And so for four years, the feeling was very heavy. I was um, sad. I was uh, miserable. I was hiding. I was, yeah, it was, wasn't good, but none of that, that heavy burden that I continue to carry and the weight of uh, the consequences that people could see and also the shames and the guilts that I was doing in private, those are building up. Those aren't going anywhere, but on a big backpack that feels like a million pounds by the end of 2004. And that's when I get the real moment that sort of breaks me. And I have by that time, a uh, four-year-old and a one-year-old and uh, it's November of 2004. And, you know, I, I, I can't be told no one, they can keep repeating that I'm, you're out of control and you're throwing your life away and uh, nothing is working. And I uh, had built a detached music studio behind our house and I'd go back there to have privacy to make music. But I was also partying back there, to be honest. It was a place that had a full bar and I could keep some drugs back there hidden and felt like I wasn't bothering anybody. And I, you know, it was 1030 on a Sunday morning and I, I hadn't made it back into my house. I would passed out very late. Uh, on a couch wearing the same clothes as the night before and my four-year-old daughter I can hear her come up the stairs 
in the back studio and I'm like, oh God, this isn't going to be good. And she hops right on my chest, like a jubilant, energetic, you know, four-year-old. And, and she says something that on any other day, I would have had some BS answer for, right? It's a four-year-old. You can make something up. And she just gets on my chest and says, dad, what are you doing? Mm. And I don't say anything. She repeats anxiously, dad, you know, what are you doing? And I, I know what she meant was pure and uh, uh, just why aren't you in there with the family? Why aren't you in there having fun? Why are you out here? Uh, perhaps why do you smell like this? Perhaps why are you wearing the same clothes that you were wearing last night when you read me my goodnight story? You know, but it's a simple, pure thing. And she finally gets frustrated because I'm not answering. I didn't have an answer for some reason that day. Maybe that's some mysterious God spirit working. I still can't explain it, but um, she runs downstairs and I'm left with myself. I'm left with maybe sort of looking up saying, God, is there something out there? Because I don't know what I'm doing, if I'm honest. That's the first time I ever admitted to myself and maybe to some God that I'm not in control. I don't know what I'm doing. And she's right. You know, uh, what am I doing? Who freaking knows? And I struggled up and, and walked down the stairs, ironically past, you know, a slew of Hooting the Blowfish gold records from faraway lands and, and Grammy Awards and all these things that uh, seemed to empower me in the past. And they held no power at that moment. They were meaningless. They couldn't help me. I was just sick and I needed a person or a group around me or a set of principles or something uh, more than a gold record plaque. And I called the one guy I knew who was uh, practicing the 12 steps and he'd gotten sober and he had um, cleaned up his life and he'd given me his phone number on numerous occasions and said, call me when you're ready. And I called him, he took me to uh, a group of people that night um, who were practicing this amazing thing called the power of transparency, which I hadn't been around really in my life. They were talking about their flaws, their limitations, their failures, mm -hmm. and telling me what their problem was, which looked a lot like the problem I was suffering from, and simultaneously giving me the solution and a pathway to it. And man, I walked out of there. Of course, I was not sober. I couldn't wait till seven o'clock at night and go to a, a you know group of people sober because I was an alcoholic. Uh, but I walked... And I felt sober when I left there. I said, I got to give this thing a try. These, I mean, it's so intriguing that they're laughing, that they're lighthearted, but they've told me all these difficult paths they've walked and that they're in a different place now. And I, I just thought, what a, what a jerk I'd be for me and my family to not go back there and, and keep listening to what they're talking about. So I did. And that was the beginning of my uh, sort of journey. And and here you are coming to us because you have a book, Swimming with the Blowfish. What was inside of you? What came up? What felt like this is something I feel I need to tell? Is it the journey of hoping somebody else can relate and get something out of it? Is it just that it felt like for you it needed to be told? What what part of it came for you to writing this book? Uh, I was probably, you know, a dozen years clean when I thought, what I had learned really about myself and, and um, mainly myself and the addiction before I thought 
I think someone would benefit from this maybe. Simultaneously, I had started to get a uh, appreciation for the whole Hootie story. I had a journal I'd kept that I wrote only during cracked review during the recording, two months of, you know, pictures and, and uh, writings about that time in my life. And uh, so I had the Hootie story that I felt had been, uh, we'd been a couple decades removed from. I had a, a knowledge and an understanding of a spiritual transformation and a unique family life. Now, Laura and I, my second wife, uh, had blended our together five kids. And maybe you have to read the book to understand the uh, complexity of that relationship. I don't know if I should give the spoiler alert, but let's just say <laughs> perhaps Laura, my now wife of 15 years, was previously married and had three children with a number, another member of the band. So that was at, at the least extremely complex, but it was a beautiful thing too. And we just, you know, it was, I thought this has kind of got some elements of a, like a, like a movie almost. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I started writing it on my birthday in 2017. And, uh, you know, I wasn't sure what, where it would go, where I, I, I imagined a book cover. I imagined it on a shelf at a Barnes and Noble, of course, but I didn't know anything about writing. I didn't know anything about publishing any of that world. So I wrote for a couple of years during the middle of that, my band reunites and has a like massively successful uh, nationwide tour playing to 20,000 people a night in arenas that we hadn't filled in since 95. And so I'm gathering the, the, the thought that this is a cool story. This is an amazing story. And so I'm telling the Hootie story and the recovery story together in Swimming with the Blowfish. And, you know, the long title that I chose, uh, Hootie Healing and One Hell of a Ride, is necessary because I want people to know this is my journey through two things that overlapped greatly. Um, they might have value for you. You know, I wanted to tell the spiritual transformation story that would fit any person who's maybe feeling like uh, they're uh, needing something or trying to fill a void because I want to tell in a general way that it's never too late to transform. If you're hung up on something or tangled up in something and you have that intuition, there's help out there. No matter what your problem is, I promise you that. And if I can be helped at age 40, anybody can. I'm more an audio books person. So I was listening to the audio book and I appreciate that you did the audio yourself. Uh, a lot of people have other people read it for them. I appreciate when the author does the reading. So thank you for that. I thank my wife, Laura. I was trying to, to bail out of it like a lazy ant. You know, I'll get somebody to do it. I just didn't think I had the, I mean, it's, it takes a little bit of voice acting, if you will. And it's a long process. I just thought somebody else can do this. And she's like, no, you need to be the voice. And I've had so many people thank you for saying it is more meaningful, uh, you know, when you're uh, hearing the person tell it. Uh, it's You can uh, sort of feel the emotion of uh the whole thing and uh so yeah glad i read it <laughs> yeah billy was talking before we came on today about how 
there seem to be a lot of similarities in his childhood and yours. You know, the the all in on sports and the Catholic upbringing. And there was like a real similar vibe for him. I'm curious with that that Catholic upbringing that I also share a little bit of. Is that the same place you go spiritually today or has that evolved in different ways or is that challenging for you? Uh, I guess I'll say, you know, the, the spiritual journey in a general sense uh, uh, can include a lot of things. It can include uh, baggage you choose to bring with you. And I think maybe that's one of the first things I had to resolve is what do I do with the childhood version of some religion that I was taught and didn't like when I was a kid, uh, put off when I got old enough to leave the house. And now I'm asked by the people around me who are telling me, if you want to get clean and stay clean, you, you, you need to embrace some higher power. Um, I was forced to say, gosh, yeah, what, what do I do with that? Who is my higher power? What is my higher power? And um, the beauty also is that they also said, you know, it's something your understanding of, of a God or of a higher power. It doesn't have to be uh, your parents' understanding or your childhood version or the guy sitting next to you. And that was quite liberating for me to think, oh, wait, I get, I get to choose who I want to either call God or what I would like to uh, worship or deify and now, while that was great, and I uh, was able to uh, say, at least I'm not God, and that there's something maybe bigger than me, that's all you need to start. I also have been probably on an 18-year journey of trying to figure out, well, what the hell is God then? <laughs> you know, I have some evidence of the the, uh, the information I was given as a kid. There's this big thing called a Bible that includes two completely separate documents, in my opinion. One, a history of the, the Jewish people, uh, you know, their uh, uh, Bible, and then sewed together with uh, more of the life of Jesus Christ, you know, like, so I've got all that, but then I've got this thing where I'm transforming as a mature, you know, 40-some-year-old guy in the United States, and some of it isn't adding up from the, the old manuscripts, I'm hearing new concepts. I'm hearing new ideas. I'm trying to fill myself up and listen and nourish with all sorts of uh, things. And, you know, I'm still kind of distilling that. It's, you know, it's it's a lot. You know, we're supposed to, for my, the way I understand it, it's a God of my understanding. And if I can't understand it, well, what's the point? So the complexities of some of the theologies that are out there don't make sense to me. I don't even really have to go down that road because if I can't understand it, I don't want it. So I have a very, some very simplistic views of, of a God concept today because I deserve and I need to understand this thing that I worship or this thing that is my guide. And so there's a few basic principles. And uh, I think Jesus as a man uh, brought some to light. He was probably the first great psychologist where he was saying some things that were not understood at the time, not accepted because they were too big. They were too for, they were like uh, beyond thinking then. Uh, there's also a lot of thinking and guidance to be taken from a lot of different places. And I, that's what I accept. Um, so it's a, it's a blend, you know, my 
sort of spiritual spirituality is like my two dogs that you might have heard barking in the background. They're Heinz 57s. You know, they're a little little bit of a bunch of things, and that's okay. That's awesome. And, and I honestly just really appreciate that answer because I feel like so many of us feel called to put some kind of definition or boundary or parameter on what it is we believe. And like, I don't know if it's good enough for Sony from Hootie and the Blowfish. Great. <laughs> cool. It's good enough for me to not be so sure all the time, too. Well, you can, have, just, my, yeah. you can have my God if you want, but I suggest you get your own. But <laughs> I like it. I like yeah. it. And even in your answer, like uh, just in research for this podcast like a lot of your current music is like seems faith centered or, or faith uh, inspired and so it seems like your faith is a, a at least it comes out that it is a driving force in your life yeah absolutely and and while uh you know i spent some time i had uh three eps that i made uh called found in and love and there were specifically Christian-themed um, uh, songs because uh, that's where I was at the time. I was I was open the Bible and went to the. I wanted to write about my faith at that time, which was really exploding, and uh, no better uh, place to find uh, copyright-free lyrics than the Old uh, Testament and the New Testament, right? No one's calling me to say you stole that line. Yeah, everybody steals that line. It's called contemporary Christian music, gospel <laughs> music. And I loved it. I, you know, it, it, at that time, it represents where I was then. And uh, I love that. And as I've gone forward, um, I have also crossed over into just wanting to write songs that are about love, the general uh, sort of concept of love and agape love, that sort of brotherly love where it's about helping one another. It's about humility. It's about getting in the back of the line and letting some other people in the front. And I've tried to uh, lean into that and some of the uh, new material on my writing writing is a little bit more in that category. And because not everybody wants uh, the course to be, I love Jesus Christ or, <laughs> you know, any of that stuff. So I think maybe the new music is a little more accessible. The one that I put out in 2022 called remember tomorrow is sort of an example of that there's some specific stuff. And then there's some general themes that I love. I mean, hell hold my hand. If I look back and look at those lyrics, that's a gospel song. You know, that's not far from just, hey, let's love one another. And mm. that's a basic concept I can I can thrive on today. That's awesome. I'm uh I'm curious what kind of things have you come up against? What challenges in your recovery journey that you, maybe you've thought I don't think the average person who's not in the spotlight or who hasn't lived some in the spotlight has to deal with. I mean, anonymity, I think, comes to mind, sure. But is there other challenges that you've faced that you feel like maybe the everyday person wouldn't encounter in a recovery process? No, I don't think so. I mean, maybe I have a larger ego than most because of my being in the spotlight, you know, right. you can get used to that and be in the center of attention is something you can get used to. And, and I did. So maybe falling from that place left me feeling more hollow than the next person, but really, you know, uh, I suffer. Uh, I don't know if my walk is, is, is different. I mostly suffer and mostly the struggles are of my own making and the struggles I have are what we have as humans. Fear, uh, I'm, a, I'm afraid I'm not going to be liked. I'm afraid 
Um, uh, you're going to find me out for who I really am. I have a, a pride and we all have a level of pride, but it's my problem. It's, it's no one else is putting it on me. You know, I, I, I don't want to be thought of as less than, um, I have an ego that's big that can't be satisfied. It says, uh, you know, no amount is ever enough. I, I just am going to demand more and more and it's silly. Um, so my, my difficulties are, are me today and I can squarely look at that now that I've sort of done, uh, you know, uh, some discovery and some research that, yeah, there's, there's tons of crummy people out there. There's, there is injustice. There is, uh, inequity, there's racism, there's prejudice. And if I can figure out what is mine to control, what is mine to fight, uh, what is mine to change and create two lanes, you know, there's a prayer, the serenity prayer that gives me a perfect opportunity to do that. You know, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Well, or change the things that I can. That's everything in life. And if I get those categories mixed up or crossed, I'm going to be fighting some miserable battles. And when I can put them in separate lanes, uh, I'm good. I can see I don't need to fight that crappy driver. I don't need to put my hand out the window. I can't fix them. Sometimes I am them. If that's what I get, if I'm honest, sometimes I'm lost. Sometimes I'm looking at my phone that's giving me the GPS directions. You know, if I can just realize uh, the only two things I can control are my own attitude and actions, I can have some peace. And we're, I, th I think that's all of us, honestly. Yeah, maybe I was on a stage and um, I feel like I want to keep that notoriety, but that's just my ego. You know, that's, that's some weird stuff in me. No one else can fix it. No one else, they might be able to diagnosis, uh, <laughs> diagnose it, but they can't fix it for me. Right. I was curious, actually, and, and Billy kind of inspired this question earlier. Have there been any professional consequences to you deciding to be open about your sobriety? I think on a, a level I'm used to interacting with people were like, oh, if you're a nurse or a doctor or a judge, you don't tell anybody you're in recovery because that could affect your career. But I guess from your standpoint, there's a probably possible implications from that as well. Have you had any backlash or negative consequences since you've been open about yourself? <laughs> the only negative consequences that, is that anybody who still parties doesn't want to hang around me. <laughs> <laughs> so I end up being, uh, you know, it, it, it's not that simple, but, you know, people look at a sober person, uh, especially in a concert setting or a drinking setting, which I still uh, hang out in, they look at it as like, Ooh, do we need to stop. Or it sometimes sheds a, a reflective light back on them. Like, Oh, are you offended by my drinking? Oh, wait, do I have a problem? Maybe drinking? Wait, do you not me want me to like all this weirdness happens when you're known to be the sober guy and it, 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 it alters people a little bit. And I hate to be that person who's making things awkward or uncomfortable in a setting, but I, I have been, unfortunately. Um, I, I still know how to have fun. And I think a lot of people think, wow, I bet Sony just sits at home reading the Bible and being bored. <laughs> but that's not the journey that I've understood. Uh, Laura and I laugh a lot. We have a lot of fun. We still have, you know, we're demented minds like anybody. We're, we're not 
you know, haven't become perfect by getting sober. Uh, if anything, we acknowledge our imperfections a little more openly and there's a laugh to be had for that, you know? And so the consequences, you know, I've had to change some of the, the places I go and some of it's because I don't want to be the awkward sober person for other people. The other one is I, I found it to be just not as much fun when I noticed what chemicals do to people. And this isn't a judgment on people who drink or smoke dope or, or do anything. But the truth is alcohol, if you keep drinking it, makes you louder, more repetitive, a little spitty, <laughs> and often not making any sense at all. I was that guy for 25 years. Of course, I know that's what we do. So when you're the sober guy, you lose a little patience for that. And, and you know what? That's again, that's my problem, not someone else's. I can go wherever I want if I have the right motivation. And, and I do for the most part. And uh, so, yeah, my, my, I have the same problems as you guys and a lot of the listeners. Um, and in that way, we're all, all the same, we're just humans trying to do our best down here. Uh, somebody said once that I'd love the saying, uh, you think my problems are bad. You ought to see my solutions. <laughs> and the truth is that is my problem is that I don't know how to solve stuff. And um, other people do a better job doing that. Um, so there you go. Did you notice that there was any more difficult challenge to playing live after you got into sobriety? Did that become a thing that was hard for you to do at first or felt very different or not so much? Yeah, my real fear and what kept me drinking for a number of years was I couldn't imagine a life without that elixir. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, a nearly working part of my day, the obsession to get it. And then the physical part of putting it in me and having it as sort of a crutch and having it be that uh, sort of lubricant that helps me get along with people in awkward environments. I could meet anybody, anywhere, any fan, any rude fan, any great fan, anybody who hated doing the blowfish. If I had a big bourbon and ginger ale, it was okay. I don't, I don't care. It, it made me not care. And in that way, it's not a good thing in the long run. <laughs> I didn't know who I was. I was just using that as the crutch. And um, I don't know, down the road, it's um, you learn where you can go. You learn who you like. You learn about boundaries. That was a great gift I got in my sober journey is I have boundaries and I put them out there and I know what they are and you can see them. Sometimes people cross them and then we figure it out at that point. But um you know, it's the journey has been good. And I think that answers more than your question. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, it's it's been a good, I had no complaints on the journey. So I'm guessing now you're kind of on the, the book tour, still writing music. What's next for Sony? What is your next passion, your your thing right now that feels like it's it for you? I uh, get the gift now with having a book. And it's been out for just about a little over a year. Uh, it's opened up some new avenues. So the book celebrates uh, music and recovery. And and uh, so I started thinking, I need to go do bookstore events. So my book is about to come out last summer. And I'm Googling because I had booked a bookstore event 
author Jim Sodafield will come out to your bookstore and he'll talk about blah, blah, blah. I have, I go, what am I, wait, what does an author do at these things that I, I signed up for? I'm Googling the day before, what is an author event? Uh, what does an author do at an author event? And I uh, sort of took some notes and uh, realized, okay, I, I, I can do that. I talk about the book a little bit and, and answer some questions. But after doing one of those events, I thought, this is not as exciting as I needed to be, as I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And since I write songs and I sing, uh, the next event we put together, I uh, said, can I incorporate some music into this? I can tell some stories mm-hmm. from the book that are about the writing of some of the Hootie songs, which right. I was in with. And also support the message uh, that is sort of uh, the message of hope through music and uh, our connection through music. Anyway, uh, I started incorporating music. And next thing you know, six months later, I was like really becoming a storyteller and sort of an entertainer and um, at the same time. So I've been enjoying, I, I get to do some corporate speaking, some bookstore events, um, some concerts uh, for recovery. It's a little bit uh, here and there. I'm getting ready to put out a big project that I'm excited about that I can't quite tell you about, but oh, you'll be no. <laughs> soon. It's a music project that involves some uh, good friends of mine who are singers, and it's a re-release of an old project. So um, I'm excited about having a creative project in front of me, and that's the main thing that I know my heart needs is I need to figure out how to be creating something, whether it's a book or a, uh, a music uh, piece or anything. So that's what I keep doing. That's awesome. And as we're uh, eyeing the time to end here, I want to leave you with a couple minutes. Is there anything you need to plug, promote, you want to talk about, you thought we'd talk about it and we didn't get to, you want to tell the world? Like, <laughs> Well, part of it is, uh, you know, I love how the music connects us. It's probably what connects the three of us in some way. We probably have a lot in common and it has a, 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 a almost a spiritual nature to it. And it, it goes so, so much deeper, even I think sometimes than the written word. And so music is powerful to me and, and I've known that, but I love to point people towards my page, my Jim Sonnefeld sort of Spotify music page, because uh, you get some storytelling, you get sort of the essence of, uh, me, one of the people who was writing the the Hootie songs with uh, the rest of the band, and you get a hopeful sort of new message as well. So uh, Jim Sonnefeld has a lot of uh, uh, music on on that page for Spotify and, and Apple too. Um, and yeah, pick up the book, of course, audio or the regular book through uh, wherever you buy your books. Uh, it's a fun story. It's an easy read, I've heard. And, and uh, yeah, don't ever think my message is, if you got something you're tangled up in, no matter what it is, there is help. There yeah. absolutely is help, whether it's a, a recovery issue uh, or a personal issue. Don't ever think you're alone in that. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Sony, for coming on. Absolutely. We'll have links to the right underneath of this, to the website, to the book, the audible version, all of those things. Awesome. I'll, uh, if you don't have any assets, let me know. I'll hit you guys in the side because we got uh, links to all sorts of things, right? That's all it is these days. We're link. Hit my link. <laughs> link in bio. Yeah, I think I think Patty took care of us. I think we're good to go with a lot of it. All right. All right. 
Thank you so much, Sony. We really appreciate your yes, time and you, talking Sonny. to you. It's been fascinating, and uh, good luck out there, man, with everything. It's awesome. Thanks. Keep doing what you do. Hope to run into y'all down the road somewhere. It'd be yeah. great, man. All right, take care. Thank you. Peace. Did you like this episode? Share it with people you think might get something out of it. Check out the rest of our episodes at recoverysortof.com. Also, while you're there, you can find ways to link up with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, YouTube, anything. We're always looking for new ideas. Got an idea you want us to look into? Reach out to us. <laughs>